0: So you want to know the ins and outs of managing your money. Well, lucky for you, you're just in time for another episode of Master Your Finances with certified financial planner professional, Kurt Baker. Kurt and his panel of experts are here for you and will cover topics from a legal and personal standpoint. They'll discuss tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money, and more. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Ryder University. Now, let's learn how we can better change our habits with Kurt Baker.
1: Good morning and welcome back to another edition of Master Your Finances, presented by Certified Wealth Management and Investment. I am Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional, hosting your show, and my office is located in Princeton, New Jersey. I can be reached through our website, which is www.cwmi.us. Or you can call me directly at uh, 609-716-4700. And today I'd like to start off by just talking a little bit about um, one of the um, entrepreneurs that really kind of uh, cut the way to some of the investments we have today. And his name is John Clifton Bogle, who's the founder of the Vanguard Group, who just passed away this past uh, week in uh, Bryn Mawr- uh, Pennsylvania, um, and he was 89 years old, and he had a very interesting career. Uh, he actually passed away from uh, cancer. He had had several um, heart attacks, or six to be exact, since the age of 31. So his health wasn't great throughout the years, but um, he had a pacemaker installed as well as he had a uh, heart transplant, but he kept going. But he was really um, an interesting person in his early career. He started off... Um, He was a graduate of um, Princeton University. He was a very intelligent guy, and he he went to work at Wellington Fund, where very shortly after starting there, um, the people he worked with um, described him as someone who knew more about the business than they did. Even as a young person, he really caught on to the concept of investing and uh, mutual funds and things like that, which were relatively a new thing. And back then, um, one of his thoughts was, why are we investing in just one um, you know, business or businesses? And he really um, wanted to expand it into multiple types of businesses and increased uh, the diversification of the strategy. So he didn't really believe in like investing in just one fund. He wanted to kind of spread the risk out over multiple types of investments and so forth. So he eventually... Um, climbed up through the ranks and then in um, in, uh, 1970 he became the chairman of Wellington Uh, however he made an error in judgment when he um, wanted to he made a bad investment but he did but just like anybody who's an entrepreneur um, they typically learn more and he he was quoted as saying "Um, the great thing about the mistake was uh, which was shameful and inexcusable and a reflection of immaturity and confidence beyond what the facts justified Uh, that I learned a lot. And so he took that a lot like um, Warren Buffett learned a considerable amount for Berkshire Hathaway, which was a textile firm that he purchased that didn't turn out too well. So he kept the name specifically to remind himself to always be uh, cognizant of the errors that you can make and don't uh, outsmart yourself essentially. And just be very careful and cautious, stick to a systematic plan of investing. Uh, And then later in 1974, Bogle, he founded uh, the Vard Company, which many people are aware of, and he was very successful. And then in 1999, he was described as uh, one of the four investment giants of the 20th century. And he started off um, early on, he created, um, the, he was the person that really kind of um, came up with the idea of the index fund. And um, so when he first started off, the Vanguard Fund, which was really a representation of uh, the index, which was the uh, 500 Fortune 500 is what it was initially indicated as being. And it was first called the First Index Fund, which was um, the, the precursor to what we now know as the Vanguard 500 Index Fund. And so that was a very, very new concept. And the idea was that you purchase everything, you keep the cost very, very low, and that over time, that that will benefit um, the investors. That was really the theory. And he was essentially the first one to do that. And Vanguard did it very successfully, to the point now that it's one of the largest uh, investment firms uh, out there. And many people essentially take index firms a little bit for granted these days, where indexes are used in many, many, many different ways. In fact, now we have indexes and uh, uh, sector indexes so you can pick um, you know just a technology index fund you can pick um, uh, you know european uh, index fund us all types of different index funds and the idea being that you're just going to purchase that particular type of investment and not be as conscious about what is the under what are the underlying individual stocks which is very different than somebody like warren buffett might think of and they are very interested in knowing very specifically about the different types of investments. Um, so this was really, really new. Uh, and he's very, very successful at it. In fact, we've had a pretty good run on the stock market. And so the idea <clears throat> has worked very well because you kept he's, he's compressed the fee structure in the mutual fund industry over time, um, mainly because of the use of the index funds and mainly because of the expansion of Vanguard's um, Influence over the index funds, and he's increased that over the years, and he's continued to uh, he continued to expand that. He did, um, you know, retire. He had heart problems, and then John Brennan took over as his successor. So who um, had hired back in '92, and so he has continued with that philosophy and that increase in there. So what's been good about that is he really had a number of different things that he felt were very important as far as the philosophy um, for investing. Here were kind of the eight rules that he typically would follow. His, his, he believed very strongly in selecting funds that had a very low cost structure, so he was very cognizant of the cost of actually running the fund. Um, he considered uh, very carefully the added costs of advice. So his view was that the market is kind of the market, and how much additional advice can be done to kind of influence within the market. Um, He was very cautious about how much to pay for that, so he was very cognizant of that as well. He was also very careful not to overrate uh, past fund performance, and this is a common mistake, is sometimes people look at the past performance, and I know that many funds, we have to disclose by law that past performance is not indicative of future results and things like that, And because it's very true. You'll see uh, highly rated funds out there, which um, absolutely does not necessarily mean that's going to be the best rated fund going forward. In fact, history shows that most of the time it's just the opposite, that you're going through different cycles in the market, and many times those go from the top you know, quartile or 25% of the funds down to the middle or lower Quartiles um, over the next couple of years, so you just need to be very careful about that as well. He um, also didn't, didn't like to use pa- he used past performance to determine consistency and risk. So he looked at the past performance and he looked at the consistency and the risk within that performance. So he did look at that. Um, he also was very careful to be um, beware of stars, and what we mean by that is different mutual fund managers. He didn't believe that they knew as much as maybe the, the reputation would indicate, so he was very cautious to um, not overemphasize the, the knowledge that the investor brings to that, or the manager, I should say, brings to that. He was also very concerned about the asset size, uh, how big it got, and things like that, and how that influenced everything. Another thing that he didn't like to do was he didn't want to own uh, too many funds. He felt that you could, you, if you dilute it too much, he felt that you would have trouble tracking all of that, so he didn't believe in uh, owning too many funds. He also believed um, in buying the portfolio and then holding on to it as a strategy. So he he, he, tr- he pretty much followed that throughout his life, and they continued to really um, advance the the world of index funds and the, and the fact that now you can really buy any type of fund that you want. Just decide what you're interested in purchasing buy an index fund, and you pretty much own that particular area, whether it's technology, whether it's healthcare, um, bonds you can buy. Um, and, and it's really simplified the investment styles, and it's uh, brought a lot of that to um, consumers direct, which was really part of this consumer direct movement that went from brokers kind of handle all the transactions and all the trades. Now it's very easy to go on to a platform yourself, purchase the stocks, purchase uh, the bonds in these different indexes, and you'll have some sense of where it may head as far as the the, the style goes, um, but that has its downsides too. And in the next segment, we'll talk a little bit about the difference between passive investing, which is really what an index fund is, where there's no manager really making any decisions, and it's there to kind of mimic the index. It doesn't you don't actually buy the index, which is sometimes. Uh, a misunderstanding about this. You're actually mimicking it, so they're trying to follow the S&P 500 things like that as closely as they can. And then the other is active, where you have a manager like a Warren Buffett who will go out there and, and look at the underlying uh, stocks and bonds and decide which of those they want to buy. So they don't buy necessarily. They try to avoid buying quote the dogs of, uh, and things like that. They try to avoid those businesses that might be having a rough time. So when we come back from the segment in a few minutes. We'll talk a little bit about active versus passive investing.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money, and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I am Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional. Um, and the last second, we talked a little bit um, about uh, kind of a literally a vanguard in our uh, in our in our world, um, John Clifton Bogle, who created the Vanguard Group, which um, they were the ones that essentially brought mainstream index funds, and every, they're pretty commonplace now. Pretty much every company offers some type of an index fund, and they have. Large cap index funds. They have small cap index funds and things like that. But that's not everything. There's also the traditional me- method of doing it, um, which are which is active portfolio management, as well as um, index funds, which are considered passive me- uh, management. So they're very different, and kind of the definition of those is those who implement an active management approach use fund managers or brokers to buy and sell the stocks in an attempt. The goal is to outperform the specific index, such as the Standard um, & Poor's 500 index or the Russell 1000, which is kind of smaller uh, stocks. So when you purchase things through um, an actively managed account, uh, one of the ratings or the, the metrics that they use is they call it alpha, which is really what additional value is the manager adding to the account. So if let's say if the the, the manager has an alpha of 1, that would mean they're adding an extra 1%. So, in that theory, you you want to make sure you're not paying them more than 1% for that management. So, in theory, let's say you're paying um, another half a percent to have an active manager manage the portfolio for you, and that manager is bringing you an extra um, 1% return. That way, you're you're actually getting another half a percent return. So, that would be good. Um, But if it works the other way around, then your actively managed fund is not – doing as well as you hope and you would have been better off in this case, in this example, buying um, an index fund of the Standard Poor's 500. So that's kind of the theory and they're engaged in actively going into the market. So the manager themselves goes in and so let's say you have a, a large cap fund, which is um, they would physically go in and they would analyze things like Amazon and Facebook and, and all these other large cap funds that are part of the uh, Standard Poor's 500 and they would decide, well, Instead of buying what's proportional, quote unquote, to the Standard ports 500, let's say Apple is an example, um, was just to make it simple, four percent of the index, then you would buy, you know, four percent of that. But maybe they think that oh, let's say let's say uh, let's say Amazon is five percent as an example, they they could change the weighting if they if they thought that maybe Facebook was going to do better than Amazon over the next. Um, you know year or two so they might weight that or overweight that a little bit uh compared to the index so they might buy five percent of apple and maybe only four percent of amazon if they thought one was going to do a little bit better than the other so they're buying kind of the same stocks uh typically within there or uh in another case let's say they had a, a a stock that was part of the index they weren't really thrilled about let's say it was a declining stock that uh, was not doing well, um, as an example, back when Sears was still part of the index, they might've said, well, I'm not too, too keen on that particular uh, part of the index. So I may just avoid that stock altogether. So they wouldn't necessarily buy every single item in the portfolio. They might weight it really, really lowly um, and not buy very much of it at all. So that gets pretty complicated and it um, obviously involves time, it involves analysis. And they need to take a look at all of these um, aspects of each of the stocks and look at how they they weight is what they're going to do. And so that's why you purchase um, stocks that might be part of a a managed account. And nowadays we have also the passive strategies, which don't really have as extensive of a a management team. They're really just people who go in and they will – usually set up something that mimics the index so they'll do their best to follow along with the exact levels of each of the stocks as best as they can Um, but they don't necessarily buy exactly what's in the index they could buy things that are performing similar to it Um, and that's something that's kind of a misunderstanding sometimes people have and those are called exchange traded funds you can also buy those which also try to mimic um, them as well or you can buy a unit investment trust so there's different ways to do that, and they are managed by a um, you know, manager that's replicating that index, and they're trading it on their risks uh, within the index itself, and the management fees tend to be lower on that because they're, it's already scripted to the manager is exactly how they have to do it. They're not doing any additional analysis on the underlying stocks, and that's one of the things that attracted the creation of index funds in the first place was to try to keep the fees down as much as they could with the idea that the market is the market and it will go where it's going to go so as long as you purchase in a particular sector um your investments are going to keep going up because over time uh as many people know that this the stock market equities or actual ownership of a company does a little bit better um as a group than the general economy. So if you buy into the market, quote unquote, um, chances are historically you're over a very long period of time, you're going to do pretty well. You're going to keep up with inflation. You're going to, because all of that's tied into the economy itself in order for the companies, of course, to survive, they have to make enough money and pay their employees um, to continue to grow. So we're, we're always going to have some type of stock market out there. So that's important to, you know, kind of understand how all that works. And so it's it's really important to know why we buy them. And nowadays, what some managers will do is they'll actually combine um, passive investing with active investing. As an example, one of the theories is that you purchase index funds for very lar- for large caps because large caps are large caps, and it's very hard to um, kind of pick and choose like whether, as in my example before, whether you know Facebook's going to do a little bit better than Amazon. Um, they're going to tend to follow fairly closely um, just historically because they're so big, because they're so large. So it's very hard, um, even though some of them have done really well over the last few years, um, as far as their equity growth, larger companies tend to grow at a more moderate pace over a period of time. And so it tends to be more predictable. So the stats show that, that over time that tends to be the better way to go. An index fund keep the management fees low, However, when you get into uh, mid cap or smaller cap, which are your smaller equities, um, they do show where managers can um, add some value there because they're literally going in and finding these smaller companies, figuring out which ones may have um, a little bit of a lead on others in in their sector. And if they do a little bit of analysis where many managers go out and actually meet the management team, they go out and kind of dig in almost like they're going to, because they are, like they're going to buy the company because they're buying stock in the company. So if you have a, a good manager who understands um, what they're doing and what they're looking for, uh, and that would be kind of a Warren Buffett type person, they actually understand what they're buying and they can um, they can pick out, as an example, like the Russell 2000, which is a lot of stocks. They will not buy all of that, right, or, or, um, or, or some of even the smaller ones in that but they will, so they they can pick and choose within that. Now that's a much more volatile market because they're smaller and it's more risk associated as a whole with smaller uh, stocks. And so that's why sometimes it actually does pay to see an active investor, uh, an active manager involved in these smaller. So that's what some of the theories are now where you kind of blend these strategies together um, and you don't necessarily go completely um, index or completely active management. That's the most common scenario we see where they kind of move in and out. Part of it's because of the cost structures. And so you're trying to look at overall um, uh, structure when when you're trying to put an investment plan together as far as long-term, especially when you talk about retirement, and things like that, that might be 10, 20, 30 years away, those extra fees and costs in there can um, add up. And that's one of the ideas behind trying to keep those costs down as low as you can. So just keep in mind that what you want to do is really kind of blend the strategies, um, understand where your uh, investment goals and targets are. And and that's that's also why, um, like bonds is an example. Bonds tend to be a little bit less volatile as far as um the styles and things because they're risk graded and things like that um but those aren't risk free either because of course when stock when interest rates go up bonds are inversely um, they go down a little bit because you're looking for the yield or the return on that particular bond so even those aren't risk adverse and that's where we're, that's kind of the market we're in now where, where interest rates are slowly going up Um, So even those um, portfolios that are considered a little bit less risky, and that's why it's important to look at your uh, time horizon, that's why it's important to look at when you need to access the funds, and when you need to keep track of this, and you kind of divide up between the stocks, the bonds, large cap, small cap, international, global, all the different types of things that are out there are really important, and then within that, you want to blend in the passive and the active uh, management styles, depending on what you're trying to do, and if done correctly, over the long period of time, and you manage it correctly, um, then you can do very well. And that's really the key is kind of sticking to the plan, setting it up ahead of time, and you will see success. We'll be right back.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I am Kurt Baker, and we've been talking a little bit about the um, the beginning of the index fund world um, with Vanguard and, and John uh, Bogle, um, and how we have passive and uh, active management. And so, and then I talked a little bit about how. When you're an active manager, you kind of look at the underlying stock values and how some stocks do better than others, even larger companies. And one that's been in the news recently I would like to talk a little bit about because um, it's kind of important, it's been an important part of the country for a very, very long time, is Sears. Um, it's a 132-year-old company, which really, um, which recently filed for bankruptcy, as many people know already, and they were early innovators um, in kind of the history, I'll give a brief history. This is back in 1866, Richard Sears, um, he uh, was born to a wealthy Minnesota family who lost their fortune in a speculative stock deal, and uh, was working as a station agent. And he began selling watches as a side business, named R.W. Sears Watch Company, and uh, meets. And then together, what ended up happening is they started selling diamonds and jewelry, and then later on. They sold that business and moved to um, Chicago in 1892 and then established um, a second mail order company and renaming it uh, Sears Roebuck and Company in 1893. And then kind of the catalog business began. And that really hadn't been a big business until then. And so he really kind of invented the idea and kind of made really kind of selling things through, um, through the mail. And so that's kind of interesting to me because we've had some other innovators. So they they innovated um, selling things through the mail. And a lot of people were were, – it was kind of new to them, and it became kind of a big part of everybody's uh, day. You'd go and you look at it, and it especially was valuable to people that were more rural areas where they could get the mail. um, They could read the catalog. They could order things through the mail. In fact, I remember reading once you could literally order a home, a small home, through the Sears and Roebuck company, and purchase it there, and they would ship you the the you know the bundled up parts to the house, and um, then you could you could purchase the home and, and uh, have it delivered and build it, and that was really really new. So they were very innovative in in how they did things and how they implemented strategies, and so they were it for, for decades and decades and decades. Sears was at the cutting edge of of how to sell and uh, deliver goods to people all over the country, but then they started to get, then they got really big. So in 1969, they became the largest retailer in the world, and they ended up building the largest skyscraper, the Sears Tower uh, in Chicago. Um, so they, they were really it, and they started implementing this strategy, they called it Socks and Stocks strategy, which was they were selling the retail stuff, but then they started getting into other businesses, and they bought uh, Dean Witter Reynolds Organization, which is a stockbroker, and they also bought Colwell Banker, a real estate broker. And then they launched Discover Card um, through Dean Witter in 1985. So they kind of expanded out what they were trying to do. And their revenues really soared. In 1992, the revenues of what Sir Sir reached $59 billion. And then they decided to kind of simplify the structure. So they started selling off parts of this thing they had built up. And, and like any company, a lot of times they think, well, I want to get into all these different businesses. And then they realized it's hard to focus on that many different types of businesses and be really good at them all. Um, So they were pulling back their strategy. They ended up um, selling off things like Teen Witter and then Allstate. And and then they discontinued the catalog itself in 1993. And a lot of people know they also were the ones that created Prodigy, which was an online um, portal to sell things that I remember back, you know, in the 70s, 80s, 80s, I guess it would have been 80s, 90s, um, and then they, they, they spent a lot of money on it to try to, to do an online strategy. It didn't work out very well. They ended up selling it off. They actually took a loss on that. Uh, between them and, and IBM, they were working on that together, and did, that one didn't work out so well, so the, so the execution didn't turn out to be too well as far as that attempt to move to online. And so then they moved on to continuing with the strategy, and unfortunately, They just didn't quite get it right. They just weren't quite able to transition from the catalog business, the retail, and take advantage of the online business. Some people thought that, well, Sears, why didn't they get ahead of Amazon? Why didn't they kind of take them out, so to speak? Because they had the whole infrastructure in place. They had all the data. They had all of the pieces in place because of the catalog business, because of the retail structure that they had. And it came down to, really, um, execution. They weren't able to execute that through they tried to open up the prodigy thing they didn't execute they didn't transition well and so um that's a problem right so as a large business no matter how big you are if you can't get the execution of the plan it's just not somebody's going to come in as a competitor and somebody's going to come in and start to compete against you and the and the big competitors that actually affected sears initially uh, wasn't really amazon it was really walmart walmart was the one that came along and because they had the low cost structure because they were really focused on trying to keep that structure in place, try to be very diligent about keeping the cost as low as possible so that ultimately the end product to the consumer was less, they became much more aggressive. So if you walked into a Sears store and looked at something, um, the probability is if you went into the Walmart store and looked at something very similar, Walmart was likely to be less expensive because they had focused very much so on the supply chain and trying to make sure they understood the the, the supply chain better than the suppliers. That was one of the things that Walmart's known for. And an instance of that is uh, Rubbermaid a few years back. I remember this. When Rubbermaid decided um, they were going to increase their prices, Walmart simply rejected it. And my understanding from reading uh, articles about this, the reason Walmart rejected it was they understood the cost structure of Rubbermaid. They understood what it costs to make the rubber, what it cost to manufacture the items, and how much they felt was a fair profit to uh, Rubbermaid, which of course Rubbermaid would disagree with. And they said, well, that's all we're gonna pay. And they ended up taking a number of the Rubbermaid products off their shelves completely, which actually was very, very uh, difficult for Rubbermaid Rubbermaid at the time, because at that point they had really relied heavily on Walmart because that was a major distributor, and they put in other um, companies. So they held very strictly to their business strategy and Sears just wasn't doing that. They just weren't able to do it quite as well as Walmart. And of course, in this world and the capitalistic system, if you're not ready, to, if you don't innovate and you don't adjust, you're just not going to get there. And that's exactly what ended up happening to them. And then, they, then what happened is that Kmart ended up purchasing Sears, and so they blended together. And that's when the person that we've been hearing about a lot about lately, um, Eddie Lampert, Lampert got involved um and he's really a speculator he got in involved in in buying sears he started to um, in order to try to turn the retail company around which frankly is hard to do once your branding has been damaged um, it's extremely difficult to rebrand and turn that around Um, as history shows that's why it's very very important as a business that you build a brand and you maintain the brand and you constantly get feedback and you monitor your brand because you don't want it damaged once it's damaged it's a much harder thing to re to, to get yourself built back up again. And that's essentially the theory behind what really happened to Sears is so once people started, stopped leaving the Sears stores and they saw that Walmart maybe was a little bit better or target or some of the others that are out there, they felt were better. Now you get in the habit of going to those stores and that's exactly what you don't want to have happen. And so in order to try to keep Sears afloat, um, and some of this was controversial, they started selling off the different brands that are well known for Sears. Things like, um, Craftsman and Diehard and some of the other assets that most people kind of identified as being Sears products, Kenmore, things like that. Um, and so that's how we try to keep it afloat. Of course, right now it's in bankruptcy. and My understanding is there, there's a deal cut where um, Lampert is going to be able to pull it out of bankruptcy and try to continue on and, and run it. Um, but now one of the things they did recently was they actually have a deal with Amazon where Amazon, if they sell you things like tires and things like that, but you have to put them on, of course, Sears will actually put those tires on. So that's kind of interesting to me, only because we saw what happened with Whole Foods that Amazon um, saw kind of a deal, so to speak, because Whole Foods have been beaten down a little bit. And now they, they're using that as their retail branching and how to kind of distribute out, because that's the one thing Amazon does not have. They don't have a physical footprint like most retailers do. And that's kind of what we're seeing happening. So it would be very interesting to see what happens and how Amazon kind of now that they've got this little deal with Sears, and Sears is obviously in serious trouble. They have a lot of, they still have a lot of uh, locations. I'm going to be very curious to see how that partnership, just from um, you know, put, essentially putting tires on your car if you buy them through Amazon. What's Amazon's thoughts about that? I mean, is that something that they're looking at? I would not be shocked if they didn't um, try to cut a deal and and, and develop more partnerships since Sears is kind of on the ropes a little bit. Um, So it's going to be very curious to see how that happens. But anyway, you got to stay up with your your times. You got to maintain your brand um, uh, name. You got to keep it uh, protected. You want to make sure your good reputation stays out there and you got to innovate and you have to stay up with things. Otherwise, somebody like a Walmart or an Amazon will come along and we'll take you out. So keep on the game and keep in the business and you can continue to do very well. Be right back.
0: This is Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Learn about tax efficiency, liability, owning, managing, and saving your money and more from Kurt and his experienced panel of guests. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider University offers flexible education for adult learners. For more information, it's rider.edu slash next step.
1: Welcome back. You're listening to Master Your Finances. I am Kurt Baker, a certified financial planner professional. We'll be talking a little bit about active and passive investing, um, as well as the rise and fall of Sears um, and how you really have to stay up with the time, stay in, keep, continue to innovate, and really understand uh, what your competitors are doing and what your customers are looking for um, before things catch up with you. So it's very important to continuously innovate, Um, and stay ahead of the game, and to maintain your reputation at all times. And speaking of reputation, recently, um, Amazon had a little problem. They purchased something called Ring uh, from uh, Jamie uh, Siminoff, who was actually on um, Shark Tank a little bit ago. I remember watching that show. It was kind of interesting. So um, my recollection was he declined any of the sharks, and he ended up... uh, Growing the company, did really well. He uh, sold it to Amazon, and now he's actually a shark himself. But then there was uh, an investigation from Intercept's uh, Sam Biddle, who then alleged that Ring security cameras have have spied on employees of the company, um, have been spied on employees of the company, which Ring denies. So in other words, the access to the information um, – is accessible to anybody who has access to it. And, and even, that, even beyond that, um, some things I've seen is where if you know the person's email address, you might be able to access it. And part of this came because I guess what they were trying to do, is my understanding is, they were trying to improve um, the facial recognition technology. So they granted access to the data uh, to a, a Ukrainian company who specialized in that. So they were able to go in and kind of review the information and they're trying to improve uh, Ring's uh, ability to recognize faces and things like that so I so if somebody came to your door I guess what's going to happen is they'll be able to tell you oh that's um, your friend John or oh that's somebody you don't know Uh, and then so it's just an improvement thing however granting that access apparently gave access to the cloud where all of this information is being stored and then beyond that, there were some breaches in it. And the, the claim is that employees were able to see all of this information and that others could breach it and go in and take a look at it. So the bottom line is just be very cautious of your security. They are saying that there's no information released. I'm assuming, hopefully, they're going to go back in and review this because this one um, person uh, is able to access it. My understanding is there are some people that have been able to access the systems and just like any security system, especially electronic, if somebody can create a an, an encoding uh, many times, somebody else can come in and break it. So you have to always be conscious that these security things uh, can be broken. So whatever you're using with these electronic things, just be, just be aware of that and be aware that there are some – we're still working that out. These things are not perfect yet. Um, so security breaches can happen, and just be on your guard and take care uh, of that. So just be aware, something to be aware of. Another thing that's going on right now that I think – is affecting some people is that we have the government um, shutdown. So there's people currently that were getting a paycheck uh, a month ago and that are not. And so there's some recommendations I just want to review with everyone, which may apply to anybody who may be between jobs um, that are being recommended by the National Active and Retired Federal Employees Association. They're saying when the shutdown ends, um, they say on here, you're not necessarily going to get paid for the time you were furloughed. However, uh, the president did sign something recently stating that you will be paid. So if you're on furlough, there was a bill, um, an executive order signed that said, hey, when government employees come back to work, you are going to get your back pay. So right now that looks like that's going to be okay. However, of course, right now you're not getting it. Um, you cannot volunteer to do work, right? So there's rules about the, whether or not you can volunteer. So if you're an employee, you can't just work for free, so to speak, if you're supposed to get paid for it. Um, so you have to do... Um, there's, some, there's rules about that so if you are doing it, you just have to make sure that you're, you're able to do that and it don't just come in and work if you're not supposed to be working and make sure it's okay as far as um, your position is um, you can't use annual lead or other paid time off instead of being furloughed, so in other words you can't say, well I'm going to go on vacation and that way I'm going to get paid, that doesn't work so unfortunately, that's the way it goes um, your health coverage does continue so you, that you shouldn't have to be concerned about that so contact, you should be fine there um, your retirement plan accounts will will cease because you're not getting paid. So the money that comes out of your paycheck is not going to go into the retirement accounts right now. Of course, if you get the back pay, then they should be catching that up. Is the theory. Um, your years of service will not be effective if it's a short term shutdown. So you don't have to worry about that. It won't be a gap in in service. So it's not considered a gap in service. Um, if you don't use any, um, you know, if you you not you should not use any of the government provided technology because because that is their system because it'll be, it'll be updated and so you're not allowed to use that while you're on furlough. Um, you might be entitled to unemployment, so you have to check with the state. So depending where you are, they may be giving you the ability to uh, collect unemployment benefits during the furlough period, but there may be an offset if you start getting paid back. So just be aware if you take that money, you take that unemployment check now, um, and then you go back to work, you're gonna get paid for that. So there may, you may have to be paying it back. So if you do get the unemployment, be aware you may have to repay that back once you do get your regular check. You have to be careful about getting a second job because um, you're technically still an employee of the federal uh, government. So you have to make sure that you're not breaching any standards. Um, Assume you're still working, look at it as you would get a second job if you were still working. So whatever protocol you have to follow. Um, and lastly, not least, but they say, call your representative at 800-456-8410 and ask them to please get everybody back to work again. Which, of course, would be beneficial to everybody if we can kind of work a way to uh, work that out. And so, for those who are not working, even if you're not a, uh, a even if you're not a government employee, some of the kind of the tips to do when you're not actually going to work every day, right? Um, it's a change. You're not retired. You may go back to work. One of the keys is just for your own health and well-being. Here's just a couple of tips. One, keep a regular schedule, right? If you used to get up at a certain time in the morning, get, get up at that time in the morning. If you go exercise, go exercise. Um, if, you, if you're able to get a job, you know, a temporary job, that's fine. Um, of course, the government employees have different rules. But if you're looking for another job, you can go through a temp agency, get a job part-time until you find that full-time job. There's a lot of jobs available online, so you can look at online. So there's job sites like Fiverr, F-I-V-E-R-R, that you can go to and try to find online work. So sometimes you can work right from home, make a few dollars that way. Um, get organized. It's a great time to get organized as far as you know, looking at all of your different aspects of your, of your uh, life. So you can kind of you know, clean out that you know, closet or the garage or whatever and things like that. Kind of take care of that to simplify your life and keep things streamlined. Uh, good time to do that. Another thing that's really important is to stay physically active. Um, You want to maintain an exercise schedule. You want to stay active because you were going to work. You were doing things. You don't want to just sit home and watch TV all day or anything like that. You want to make sure you maintain a physical because that's good for your health, good for your mental health, physical health as well. Uh, If you can, another thing to do is to volunteer, and that's along the same lines. You want to take this time to help others because that's a good way to help yourself. Uh, go ahead and use that time. Use that time to help out your favorite charity, um, and you know do some good. If you have a little bit of time off, and take care of others while you're you've got a little bit of time on the, on that on, on you know going on at that point in time, it's also a good time to take some courses. A lot of these courses are available online, so you can increase your skill set. Right. So depending on what your your job is, there could be videos, there could be online courses, mini courses, things like that. Um, and depending on where you are and your job set, yeah, why not get better at what you do? Right? Why not get better at what you do? Another thing, if you can financially afford it, is kind of treat yourself, right? If you've got a little time off, uh, you can, in one way, look at it. this is maybe, a, let's take our vacation now instead of taking it maybe uh, in the spring or the fall. Since you do have time off at, at this point in time, uh, maybe take a few days, go somewhere, do something, enjoy yourself a little bit if you can. Uh, look around your house and maybe see things that you can sell, right? It's a good time to maybe activate your eBay account and say, hey, maybe it's time for me to sell these couple things I don't really use a lot. And, um, you know, go ahead and take care of that. And, you know, that's a great time to do that as well. So, yeah, improve yourself. Take this time to benefit yourself. Get organized. Uh, maintain your routine. Um, all good things that you should be doing uh, if you're having a little time to yourself, a little time to organize, a little time to get a little bit better. And so you, I appreciate you listening to the show again today. And again, my name is Kurt Baker, and you can reach me through our website, which is cwmi.us, or you can get the podcast of this show and all the other shows at masteryourfinances.us. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash masteryourfinances. And remember that together we can master your finances so you can enjoy financial peace of mind.
0: That was this week's episode of Master Your Finances with Kurt Baker, Certified Financial Planner Professional. Tune in every Sunday at 9 a.m. to expand your knowledge in building and managing your wealth. Missed an episode? No worries. You can subscribe to a free weekly episode of Master Your Finances to listen to on your favorite podcasting platform. Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, whatever. Master Your Finances is underwritten in part by Certified Wealth Management and Investment and Rider University. Rider offers continuing studies programs for adults who need flexibility. Want to add new skills to your resume? Take a continuing studies course at Rider University.